Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In the days following the funerals of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, a ballistics expert at the Austin Tech Lab confirmed that the bullets were linked between the killings. This confirmed for the first time publicly that the killer was one and the same. At the same time, Gonzalez told the press that the case was the most mysterious he'd come across in his 20-year career. Neither report did anything to aid in quieting the fear-spiked rumour mill working away in Texarkana. In a town that had previously operated on a pretty lax level of security, relying on the local community, locked door policies quickly came into play and guns and ammunition were quickly selling out at the local hardware stores. A group of Texas Rangers took a back room in a local drugstore as a temporary hideout, away from the local police where they could discuss plans to capture the killer. One such plan was to send rangers out in cars parked up at various lovers' lanes throughout Texarkana with a dressed-up mannequin as a passenger lying in wait to trap the unsuspecting killer. This plan may have sounded outlandish, but the rangers were not the only ones to come up with the same idea. In fact, not only had the police thought to do the same thing, but local vigilantes themselves would do it later too. Once as a patrol officer approached a couple parked up one night announcing he was with the police, he was told that he'd been lucky to announce himself so quickly. Looking down, he saw the driver had a pistol pointed at him from the moment he'd stepped out of his car. The traps all came up empty-handed though, and no suspects were brought in for questioning as a result. Local businesses and establishments chipped into the reward fund, which now reached over $6,000, a cool $76,000 by today's money. They also backed calls for a curfew to be put in place at night. 19 clergymen at the local churches were the first to officially push for the idea after much suggestion and talk of the same by the local adults. They sent a petition that read, Whereas this situation has existed in Texarkana for some time, which is unfavourable for the proper and due observance of the Christian Sabbath in keeping open public amusement places until an early hour Sunday morning, and whereas this situation has further contributed to an increase in juvenile delinquency and crime in our community, Therefore, be it resolved, the Texarkana Ministerial Alliance petitioned the City Councils of Texarkana, Arkansas and Texarkana, Texas to adopt an ordinance to close all public places of amusement on Saturday evening at 12 o'clock at night. Whilst the subtext of this petition might not be appreciated by all in retrospect, at the time it was not an unpopular idea and many local businesses agreed to a voluntary curfew before the submission of the petition regardless. On the weekend of April the 22nd, the Paramount cancelled its midnight movie and diners closed their doors at 10.30pm. It's a testament to the level of panic that had spread throughout the city when one considers that even the young people of the time for the most part agreed willingly to the curfew. As people linked the murders, paranoia began spreading with the overall anxiety in the community. People had ideas on who they thought the killer was or could be. The problem was, Everyone suspected everyone else, so really, it could have been anyone as far as the community was concerned, and this didn't help matters. P. 
people began expecting another killing to take place and this was reflected when the body of a young man was thought to have been discovered on Saturday the 27th of April. After police checked out the call however, they found a drunk 15 year old boy passed out in the middle of the road. When four local lads had got their car stuck in the mud and couldn't make it home that night, panic spread once again. That was until they strolled into town the next afternoon, a little stressed perhaps, but healthy. The police had to follow all leads, including ones that led them to drunk teens lying in the road. Thought to be slightly more promising at the time was a call from a local music shop. They had contacted police after a man had walked in off the street on the 25th of April trying to sell a saxophone and when the sales staff asked the man to wait and speak to the manager, he panicked and fled. He was eventually arrested two days later in the Waterfront Hotel after he tried to buy a 45 caliber pistol from a pawn shop. He no longer had the saxophone in his possession, but it was positively ID'd by the sales staff from the music shop and the police did find a bag of bloody clothing in his room. He told the police the blood was his own and came from a cut on his head he'd received after getting into a bar brawl. What had seemed like a promising lead disintegrated as the man's alibi checked out and by May the 3rd, Gonzalez informed the Texacana Gazette that he had been cleared from suspicion entirely. A second arrested suspect was a man never publicly named, but known as Sammy. He was a local black man in his mid-thirties and he'd been arrested due to the tyres of his car matching tracks lifted and cast opposite the body of Paul Martin. Sammy didn't seem phased by the arrest and happily took a polygraph test. He failed it on three separate occasions, but something wasn't right. Sammy had had no police record and he was a fairly amiable man with a solid local reputation. He kept insisting that he had not driven along the gravel road that night. However, each time the question arose on the polygraph asking if he had been there, he failed. Sheriff Presley decided to take unusual actions. He took Sammy to Dr. Travis Elliott, a physician and practitioner of regression hypnosis. Dr. Elliott spoke to Sammy in a private session and by the end of it, he was convinced of his innocence. Still, Elliot and Presley pressed on with the hypnosis session and whilst in a deeply relaxed state, Sammy finally admitted to being at the scene. He didn't admit to being a killer, however. He simply admitted to driving home late on the night of the murder, pulling over by the side of the road to relieve himself, after which he stepped back into his car and drove home to bed. He was eventually cleared entirely. Whilst police followed up on all the leads they could, the local press also found themselves inundated with hoaxers calling up claiming to be the killer. On one occasion, two weeks after the murders of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, a man called the Texarkana Gazette claimed to be the Phantom and predicted a third crime would be carried out the following weekend, three weeks since the last. He suggested meeting with the journalist, however he was dismissed. Killers don't call and callers don't kill, they assessed. The fact of the matter was, people had been putting two and two together for a few days now, and they'd taken note that the first attack had occurred three weeks to the day before the second. The extrapolation from that point was to expect a third attack three weeks from the second, and so, a countdown of sorts had begun. This heightened the tension of the city as they counted down the days to May the 4th. Virgil Starks was 37 years old. He was born on April 3rd, 1909 and was married to his childhood friend, 36-year-old Catherine Starks, 
who was born just five months later on September 25th, 1909. Their parents had both owned farms in Redwater, about 15 miles west of Texarkana. Virgil Starks had moved to Texarkana on the Arkansas side in the late 1920s. The pair married on March 2nd, 1932 and moved in together on a farm that sat 100 yards northeast of Highway 67, another of the main arteries that sprung from Texarkana, headed northeast on the Arkansas side. The couple both worked on the farm harvesting cotton, corn and feedstock, whilst Virgil also welded on the side in the shop that sat on the 500 acre property. They had no children and lived in relative comfort in the spacious six-roomed farmhouse. The farmhouse itself sat about 10 miles northeast of the Texarkana city limits, though the couple would certainly have heard of the killings. Catherine's family lived nearby, and their social lives, including their church, were all located within Texarkana proper. On the evening of Friday the 3rd of May, Catherine was already in her nightgown, relaxing in the bedroom, whilst Virgil turned on his wireless radio and he sat in the living room chair to read the paper. He didn't get far through it, however, before he was shot twice in the back of the head through the living room window. He slumped forward in the chair as Catherine came into the living room to see what the noise was, and when she saw her husband, she ran straight to the telephone on the wall and went to pick up the mouthpiece. There were two more cracks as she was shot through the same window, once in the face with the bullet entering through her cheek and exiting by her left ear, and the second broke her jaw, shattering her teeth. She dropped to the floor and in a horrific state, but alive, she crawled to the bedroom to collect their gun. Not sure of where the gun actually was in the bedroom, and unable to see, she changed direction and instead headed towards the kitchen just in time to see the shooter climbing into their house through the kitchen window. Bloody and afraid, she clambered to her feet and stumbled through several rooms, leaving behind a trail of blood to the front door and out into the yard. Barefoot, blinded by her injuries, and functioning purely on adrenaline, she ran across the yard to the highway. She could only think to keep looking ahead and run as fast as she could to her sister's house who lived about 200 yards away on the opposite side of the highway. She stared ahead and reached the front door and thumped as hard as she could. The lights in the house were all off though and no reply came from her hammering on the door. No one was home. Catherine turned and ran next to her sister's neighbour's house, another 50 yards away. This time she had more luck, and the neighbour, a Mr Prater, was home. Prater went inside to grab his rifle. He fired it into the night sky to alert any nearby residents. Elmer Taylor, another nearby resident, came to their aid after hearing the gunshot, and the pair drove Catherine to the Michael Meager Memorial Hospital. When they arrived, she was immediately taken into the operating theatre to be operated on. Whilst they drove to the hospital, police had been called and Arkansas State Officers Max Tackett and Charlie Boyd were the first officers to respond to the radio call out as they were out on patrol in the nearby area. Earlier that evening, Tackett had seen a suspicious car parked up, but he hadn't the time to check it out. They now guessed that it likely belonged to the attacker. They roped off the house and protected the scene as best they could, before upwards of 30 more officers descended on the scene. Though they had tried to protect evidence as best they could, in the commotion, it was all largely for nothing. Miller County Deputy Sheriff was also one of the first officers to arrive, though by the time he had got there, there was already a great deal of hustle and bustle. 
In a later interview, he told of the scene. We tried to secure the crime scene and we were in and out of there all night long. We were running around trying to find leads and gather what evidence we could. We tried to interview some people and question some suspects. We went to other people's homes in the area to see if they had heard or had seen anything. People would stand out near the front of their homes and yell at you to identify yourself before you got too close. You had to identify yourself or you would have got shot. A blockade was erected on Highway 67 and all the neighbours were briefed on the events at the farmhouse, along with over a dozen arrests made. They almost all were released immediately and had only been taken in for being in the area. Police found money in the house along with a purse containing cash and jewellery on the bed, which led them to believe robbery had not been a motive for the invasion. In a trail of blood leading through the house, bloody footprints were found and they were initially believed to be from the killer, though in truth, no one could be quite sure as so many officers had traipsed through and the sheer amount of blood left by Catherine as she ran had made it difficult to keep the area clean with so many officers coming and going. Nevertheless, the area of floor with the footprint was pulled up and sent for analysis. A red metal flashlight was also found in the bush by the window that had been shot through and 22 caliber bullets were retrieved from the walls of the house. This struck an immediate wrench in the theory that the phantom had struck again. The bullets had been fired from a different gun. This time the attacker was deemed to have used a 22 caliber rifle a gun that was so common, it wouldn't have been unlikely that almost every house in Texarkana had owned one. For the first time in the Phantom Killings, tracking dogs were used to attempt to follow any trails. However, they were chasing shadows in many regards. The police had nothing solid to give them to track, and with so many trails leading in and out of the house from all of the officers, they could have led the police almost anywhere. Footprints were lifted from the mud in the yard out by the welding shop and in the field, however the ground was so loose they were in a relatively poor state. They had however been lifted from the field opposite of where Tackett and Boyd had spotted the parked car earlier, and cigarette butts were found on the ground where it had been parked, along with the tyre tracks that appeared to have come from the southerly direction of Texarkana. If they had been the killers, a picture formed of a man smoking cigarettes and mulling over his coming spree of violence until dark enough for him to cross the road, walk across the field to the house under cover, and to carry out premeditated murder. The next morning, Saturday the 4th of May, the Texarkana Gazette ran with the headline Murder Rock City Again, Farmer Slain, Wife Wounded, Assassin's Bullets Kill Virgil Starks. Virgil Starks' funeral was held on Monday at the First Methodist Church with over 500 people in attendance. On the same day, the flashlight was sent via airplane to the FBI headquarters in Washington for extensive fingerprint work, including both the flashlight and its batteries. On Tuesday, Catherine was deemed well enough by doctors to be questioned in hospital. She had suffered a horrific ordeal, but remained stalwart in her personality throughout. She told the police that during the attack, she'd first thought to fetch a gun from the bedroom to defend herself, but could not see well enough through her own blood. She could not provide any more detail on the killer though, and once again, it seemed there had been a murder in Texarkana by a criminal that left very few, if any, leads, and no motive whatsoever. Local stores were checked for stockists of the flashlight, and though it turned out to be a relatively rare model, the shopkeeper could not recall who he had sold the particular light to, nor how long ago. A detailed description of the light, along with a large colour composite picture, a first for the Gazette, 
was printed in the paper appealing for any information on the flashlight to be reported to police. Have you seen this two-cell flashlight? You may be the one to aid in solving the phantom slayings. Upon its return from the FBI, however, the flashlight was found to be entirely clean of prints, inside and out, suggesting the killer had been savvy enough in his crimes to have cleaned the light and worn gloves on the night of the attack. Likewise, the results from the footprints lifted from the house, four in total, three from the floor and one from the kitchen window curtain, came back as inconclusive. And still, the rumour mill continued to turn. Motives, MOs and suspects were thrown out casually by all who would have the opportunity to give their peace on the subject, and to anyone who might lend an ear. Suggestions that the crimes were sexually driven began gaining pace throughout the community, and the press followed suit, printing headlines such as Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders, from the front page story on the Sunday the 5th of March. The Gazette also took to interviewing Dr Anthony LaPala, a psychiatrist from the Texarkana Federal Correctional Institution, on a possible profile for the killer. It was a move that might seem fairly normal by today's standards, but at the time, profiling was in its infancy, and was a remarkably forward-thinking move by the editor, Mahaffey. They printed the profile in the May 7th edition of the Gazette, alongside an introduction to the process that read, If one and the same man is responsible for the five murders that have been committed in the vicinity since March the 24th, the Gazette feels that the public should know the type of man with which the community is dealing. With that thought in mind, the newspaper asked Dr Lapala for the following interview. This interview was sought and was given only in the interest of the public, and the intent is not to alarm unduly anyone, but to give everyone the benefit of what is considered an expert opinion as to the mental behaviour of the man sought in these crimes. Lapala's profile, however, was not to be reassuring at all and it's unlikely that anyone in the community thanked the Gazette for informing them just who they were dealing with. Indeed, it might be said that after reading the profile, no one was any the clearer anyway, and only worked to stoke the paranoia already endemic in the community. The parlour believed the same criminal was linked in all attacks. It was a male in his mid-thirties to fifties. He was possibly a local due to his knowledge of the area, though not necessarily, as he could have come from another area and he acquainted himself with the situation before it struck. It was possible he would change his hunting grounds and never to return to Texarkana, but it was also possible he would have known what was being done at all times with the investigation and therefore may be simply laying low for a while. He may appear to be a good citizen and may be a good citizen in some respects. At one point he decides the killer was probably not mentally unstable and certainly not a Jacqueline Hyde type figure though it might have been worth checking mental institutions for recently released suspects all the same. He then later decides that he may well be insane. This man is extremely dangerous. He works alone and no one knows what he is doing because he tells no one. It was quite a jumbled picture. People around Texarkana were drawing their own conclusions as to who the killer may or may not be. And not everyone, including many police officials, believed all the attacks to be linked. The use of a different weapon in the Starks attack, along with the fact it was made inside a home, were not missed by most, and serious doubts began to arise. On the other hand, perhaps it was possible that the killer knew too much about the investigation, perhaps he knew the lovers' lanes were too high risk, or that the curfews and general air of fear throughout the cities had simply driven people to stay at home or act with high levels of caution if they are out, and this had driven the phantom to kill inside homes to get his fix. In short, no one appeared to know much of anything, 
and anyone and everyone was a potential suspect. On May the 11th, Sheriff Presley and Chief of Police Jack Runnels appealed for any information on missing persons on the nights of the murders. We want every man and woman in these two counties to recall the dates of these murders and also to recall whether or not any person close to them was missing or out of pocket during these nights. Persons who have such information and have been withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to possible charges of complicity in event the Slayer is captured. Make no mistake about the fact that the Slayer will be captured because we will not give up this hunt until he has been captured or killed. All information received will be treated confidentially. We urge you to come in and tell what you know. Don't be hesitant or fear that you are causing an innocent man embarrassment and trouble inasmuch all investigation will be confidential. This is no time to take any chance on information which might lead us to the Slayer. This maniac must be captured. We believe that we are justified in going to any ends to halt this chain of murder. Bear in mind, this killer may strike at anyone. He may strike at persons close to him. For that reason, we believe any person with information that may lead us to the murderer should act in the interest of self-preservation. The pooled cash reward for information on the killer now sat at a tidy $10,000, yet still no information was forthcoming. The tension in the area now reached a tipping point. In the days that followed, groups of residents patrolled the streets by night, whilst others locked themselves indoors, afraid of their neighbours. A teen at the time, William Atkinson, later told of the atmosphere in the days following the Starks' attack. If you wanted to go to someone's house after dark, you had to call them first and let them know you were coming. The big wonder for everyone back then was whether the killings were being done by someone who lived among us. The hype of a serial killer attacking the vulnerable, named the Phantom, proved too much for national press to ignore and there was an influx of journalists into the area looking to get in on the good copy that Ranger Gonzalez was consistently offering up. Published a month later, on June the 10th, 1946, Life magazine published an article on the case titled Texacana Terror, with the byline, Southern City is panicked by killer who shoots according to schedule. In an exercise in what might have seemed hyperbole from outside, the article spoke of a town gripped by terror and of terrified housewives who kept shotguns by their sides as they read. All the while, police, FBI and rangers snuffled down cooling trails. The article contained an image of a local woman named Mrs Henry Rochelle standing next to a homemade booby trap. A blanket is nailed over a glass door. Table teetering on ashtray will fall over if the door is opened, spilling nails onto tin trays and waking up Mr and Mrs Rochelle, who keep a rifle next to their bed. If door opens, pots will smash against vases on the floor. Evocative language aside, the article was not far from the mark. Police investigations slowly continued the laborious work of trawling through the hundreds of false leads, hoax calls and questioning the arrested suspects, which would eventually total into the hundreds, and has been reported to have been over a thousand. Almost all were arrested on tenuous links or false tip-offs, but with no DNA testing, no detailed autopsies, minimal preservation of crime scenes and fingerprinting both cursory and often interfered with by the commotions at each crime scene, the police had very little to work with. Nightlife and shopping economies were struck heavily as people stayed at home more and more. Sales of guns and ammunition, however, flew, and sales were placed on back order across Texarkana. 
This wasn't helped by Ranger Gonzalez, who, in an effort to ensure the public that they were safe and protected, was brought onto local radio for an interview. This didn't go quite to plan, as Gonzalez told the city, My advice for everyone would be to lock up their houses as tight as they can and oil up their guns, and see if they are loaded or get themselves a double-barreled shotgun. Put them out of reach of children. Do not use them unless it's absolutely necessary, but if you believe it is, do not hesitate to shoot. This wasn't quite the calming influence Mahaffey, the editor of the Gazette who arranged the interview, had intended. Mercifully for the police, they found their forces bolstered by redirection of manpower from various sources. Ten extra patrol cars were drafted into Texarkana with modern radios, along with a teletype machine that would connect the Texarkana police force to other stations throughout Texas 24-7. Meanwhile, the Gazette had flown a reporter out to Mary Jean Larry to hear her story again, and on Friday the 10th of May, ran a front-page story linking the initial attack on herself and Richard Griffin with the later murders and attacks. The police were yet to publicly link them, though Mary herself said in the interview with the paper, I believe now that the officers connect all the crimes. For the population of Texarkana, it was just one more attack to worry about. The days ticked by, and the countdown to another three-week period tightened the screws on the town. And then, the weekend passed without incident. Texarkanians breathed a sigh of relief. There had been an earlier scare one week after the attack on the Starks' house, but it had seemed inconclusive at the time and eventually discounted by officials. It was the story of Earl McSpadden, whose body had turned up mutilated by the train tracks, 16 miles north of Texarkana. The coroner had concluded that the mutilation, which had occurred after being hit by a train, had happened at least two hours after his death meaning he'd been dumped on the tracks to disguise his murder. Instead, it was found that he'd been stabbed to death, citing evidence of deep stab wounds and defensive wounds on his hands. Whilst the death of McSpadden did nothing to aid the investigation and only heightened the level of rumour in the city, which, by now, was tagging Virgil Starks as anything from an adulterer killed by an angry husband to his being a moonshiner or gang bootlegger, The murder of McSpadden, however, was ultimately not considered as being linked with the Phantom, and as the weekends came and went without incident, finally things in Texarkana began to settle back to their normal ways. During the period after the attack on the Starks' farmhouse, investigations continued to snuffle on. There were numerous suspects picked up and tracked by police, some with more credence than others. On May the 8th, police reported that they were tracking an escaped German prisoner of war, but after some excitement, he appeared to have vanished into thin air. More modern analysis of this story has tended to veer towards the idea that he very possibly did not exist at all, and was merely a product of post-Second World War propaganda. Hoaxes and fantasists continued too, as with the story of Ralph Bauman, a war veteran living in Los Angeles, who had attempted to sell his story to a newspaper of his Texarkana murder spree. When they didn't go in for the story, he took it straight to the police, telling them that he had lived for danger, how he'd previously been in a coma, and how he was running from something, maybe murder. If it turned out he hadn't committed the crimes, he hoped instead that he could settle down working as a stuntman in Hollywood. One assumes his future glittering film career went about as well as his confession. But there were solid leads too, two of which have persisted after decades of scrutiny. 
In June of 1946, with the investigation faltering, any and all leads were being followed in the hopes a breakthrough might come from somewhere. Max Tackett, the Arkansas State Police officer who had earlier seen a parked car on the side of the road on the night of the Starks farmhouse attack, made a link that he thought was worth looking into. He had been looking through records of stolen cars when he noticed something that he thought constituted a correlation. On each night of the murders, a car had been stolen and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. In the slow moving times of the investigation, it was worth something to look into. On the night of Friday, June 28th, he found a car that had been reported stolen in a parking lot and decided to stake it out and wait for the new owner to come pick it up. If he'd been expecting a violent car thief, he was to be surprised, as instead, the car was approached by a young 21-year-old girl. The girl was named Peggy Swinney, freshly returned from Shreveport, where she'd married her now-husband, UL Swinney, just two hours previous. UL, she said, was back in Atlanta selling on another car that he'd stolen. Peggy was taken into custody whilst Tackett tracked down UL in Atlanta, eventually catching up with him outside the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front Street. When Swinney saw the officer, he fled out of the back of the station and through a fire exit, but he was eventually cornered. As Tackett approached him, he told the officer not to shoot, to which Tackett replied, I'm not going to shoot you for car theft. Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars, came Swinney's reply. He didn't stop incriminating himself there either. In the patrol car on the way back to the station, he asked the officers strange questions like if they thought he might get electrocuted this time and admitting that he'll be spending the rest of my life behind bars this time. As it turned out, Swinney had led quite the life of crime. He'd been arrested before on charges of car theft, violence and counterfeiting. Despite his earlier incriminating questions, however, he wasn't ready to confess to the Phantom's murders. Aside from that, Tackett's pattern of theft and car abandonment were not quite matching up either. It was true that Swinney had stolen a green 1941 model Plymouth, but that had not been until the night after the murder of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, and Swinney still had the car three months later. He also hadn't stolen a car on the night of the attacks on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry. In fact, in Tackett's own notes on the case, police couldn't even prove if Swinney had had a car at all on the night of the Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jane Larry attacks. There had been reports of witnesses seeing him take a cab the day after, and he was also seen walking through the streets at 2am. Peggy Swinney was held in custody, accused of being an accomplice in the murders of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, but she had been remaining tightly lipped. It took her almost a full month to give a statement, at which point she then gave three statements, spanning two days. Her first statement came on the morning of July the 23rd and confessed to taking the saxophone out of Paul Martin's coupe. Although at the start of the statement, she gave contradicting information, suggesting that her husband Swinney had already had the saxophone earlier that same day. It was apparently given to him, and the story alludes to him selling it for $20. As her statement changed, however, it provided a lot more juicy details for the police. Swinney asked me if I wanted to go to Spring Lake Park, and I told him I would if he wanted to. Swinney was driving, and he drove out to the park. After getting into the park, Swinney drove on around the park until he came to a dairy over beyond the park. We had seen several cars parked around on the road in the park. 
Swinney stopped the car near the dairy and we drank four bottles of beer that we had. Swinney got out of the car and I asked him what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to go take a leak. Swinney left the car and I was alone. Swinney was gone from the car about one hour when I heard something that sounded like two gunshots. I do not know if they were pistol shots or shotgun shots. It was just getting daylight when Swinney came back to the car. He had been gone four or five hours. Swinney got into the car and started driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. When Swinney came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp on up to his waist. Before getting out of the park, we passed a car which I remember as being a coupe. I don't know what colour it was. Swinney stopped by the car, he got out, went back to the coupe parked on the side of the road. I saw him look into the car and get something out of it. He bought a large black case which looked like a hard leather black box and put it into the trunk of the car we were in. I asked Swinney what he was doing getting something out of this car. Swinney replied that a friend told him to come out there and get it. We then left the park and drove to my mother's on Richmond Road. At first sight, the statement might have seemed exciting for any officer reading the report. Finally, a breakthrough. Some of it seemed strange though, and it was unsigned by Peggy. Fortunately, the next afternoon at 2pm, she would give a second statement. This time her statement switched it up a little. She included more details, like the time they had got to the park, which was at 1am, and of how they passed the coupe. Swinney stopped the car and told Peggy how he wanted to rob the people in it. He shot the boy two times, she added. She also refined her earlier statement, saying that she'd lied and that the car had been up on a gravel road. Again, the statement was unsigned by Peggy. The problem with both statements were many, not least that the details she was given police simply weren't matching with the facts of the case. She told police that the pair had driven to the park at 1am, but Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker hadn't even left the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club by that point, so how could they have been in the park? The area where she had told police the shooting took place was also not the same as the true facts of the case. Aside from this, there were several contradictions between each statement. Had Swinney left her alone in the car, or had they robbed the couple together? Had Swinney pulled over at the side of the road to change his wet clothes, or had he stopped into a restroom to change his bloody clothes? She gave a third statement eight hours later at 10pm. In this statement, she gave a third, once again, different account of the evening. The robbery played out much the same, only this time Swinney, she said, took off with Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, leaving her behind whilst he dumped them. This time, his clothes weren't wet upon return, but covered in blood. They pulled over in the park's restroom to change, and then burned the clothes in Dallas. On July 28th, Miller County Sheriff Davis drove Peggy to Dallas to find the spot she and Swinney had burnt the bloody clothing, but after hours of searching, she was unable to find any place with evidence of a fire. Eventually, she gave in and admitted that this part of her statement had been a lie, and that she'd given her statement after extensive questioning. Still, although the evidence was highly circumstantial, the police thought it was enough for now, and at least the attacks had stopped life in Texarkana could return to normal. On October the 24th, fence repairers working in Spring Lake Park stumbled across the next big piece of evidence. They found Betty Jo Booker's sacks as they had been digging out a fence post. It had been dumped in the long grass, tossed over the fence. 
The Gazette ran a front-page story that ran for four days on the find. People in Texarkana were hopeful. If you're keeping up, this provided police another hurdle in Peggy Swinney's statement. Peggy had told police that UL had dumped the sacks in the trunk of his car, yet there it was, back out in the park. Fortunately for police, Peggy was willing to give another statement a full month later on November the 22nd. This time, they entered the park at 3.30am and the sacks case was tossed over the fence. At least, she said the case was tossed over the fence after police asked her which it was. Was it tossed over the fence or by it? On the plus side for officials, she'd signed this statement finally. Swinney's own statement wasn't giving anything away. He maintained that he'd been out drinking in a club with Peggy and some friends on the night of the Hollis and Larry attack, and later he'd slept alone. On the night of the other attacks, he claimed he'd spent various nights alone with Peggy, denying anything to do with the murders, only ever admitting to stealing cars. Fortunately for police, the statements from UL and Peggy weren't the only thing that was linking Swinney to the Phantom, and in the five months between Peggy's first and final statement, they'd uncovered a few other pieces of information which appeared to nail Swinney home as the prime suspect in the attacks. Swinney had been known to own a 32 calibre Colt automatic pistol, though he'd lost it in a game of craps at some point in the past. Alongside this, a khaki work shirt had been handed into police by Peggy's sister's husband. She'd found the shirt in her home where UL and Peggy had stayed previously for a time, and it appeared to have the laundry mark with the name Stark. The shirt was sent to the FBI, who examined the laundry mark, confirming it to say Stark. It missed the final S of Virgil Stark's surname, but it was close enough. During their examination, they had also found slag in the front pocket, which had come from a welding shop. The two slotted nicely into place. Catherine Starks, however, wasn't so sure if it had belonged to her husband or not, and while she confirmed it at first, the day after she felt she could not be sure enough to say for certain. Police thought this might have been due to her not wanting to condemn a suspect to the chair. There was one other key piece of evidence at the time, that of the date book taken from near the body of Paul Martin that Sheriff Presley had pocketed. He had since never made it public, and when they took Peggy to the scene and asked her if she'd seen UL take anything from the dead boy's pockets, she replied, I saw him take some papers and stuff. This was close enough, apparently, to constitute as a date book, though the book was never sent for fingerprinting and no direct questions stating the date book explicitly were ever brought up in her questioning not even when she sat a polygraph. The only time it was actually mentioned was in the 70s, when Presley then said that she knew of the date book. Once again, it was more circumstantial and vague evidence that fell onto the pile. The real problem with Peggy's statements lies in the fact that, aside from her contradictions and ever-changing story, saying that she knew details that she only could have known if she'd been there was not quite true. The Texarkana Gazette had themselves printed a map of locations of the attacks in Spring Lake Park two months before Peggy's arrest, and given the sheer amount of onlookers that crowded the crime scenes after the attacks, half of Texarkana likely knew several details which might incriminate them if that was all it took. This was, after all, the most talked about and reported news story of 1946. The saxophone is another thorny issue. Up until it was eventually discovered, by accident, It was never really brought up in any detail in any of Peggy's statements. In her earlier statements, it had simply been tossed in the trunk of the car. So which was true? 
had they tossed it over the fence or driven off with it in the car? If they had driven off, this would suggest that UL Swinney drove back to the crime scene and dumped it over the fence at a later date, a move which one might consider risky at best and outright stupid at worst. By the time of her fourth statement, police knew many details about his location and it had ran for four days in the Gazette. One might begin to wonder if she had been asked leading questions during her interrogations, or worse, how extensive her questioning had been. She had been interrogated by 12 officers by the time of her fourth statement, and some were commented on as old school in their operations, which leaves little to the imagination. To top it off, she later recanted her statement, and in a letter to her parents told them of how she'd lied to the police after exhausting questioning. Further to this, the only proof that Swinney himself had even been in Texarkana on the night of the 13th and 14th of April was from a statement made by Peggy's parents, a statement which they too later recanted. Even the khaki shirt leaves us with some confusion, as there are three different documents, each telling a slightly different story of how it came to be in the police's possession, and one claimed it had come from a motel, which police could never prove Swinney had even stayed in. As quickly as evidence stacked up against Swinney, it fell down under hard scrutiny. Eventually, police were found to not have enough hard evidence on him for the murders. Peggy refused to testify against him in court, and by law, as his wife, could not be forced into doing so. Instead, he was tried for car theft, and since he'd been a repeat offender, was sentenced to life all the same. Had they got the right man? Some seemed to think so, but others were never so sure. Mahaffey, the editor of the Gazette, told the Dallas Morning News years later that he was never convinced by Swinney, and Sheriff Presley's nephew spoke in a 50th anniversary article on the attacks in the Texarkana Gazette of how he never quite believed his uncle had been 100% sure. I got the impression that my uncle was not 100% certain that the evidence that they had on the leading suspect was conclusive enough. He had deep feelings for people, and he knew that because of the emotions of the time, that whoever was convicted probably would be electrocuted. He wanted to be absolutely certain. Nevertheless, Swinney was undeniably a criminal and the prime suspect. The killings had stopped and the fear that had gripped Texarkana had finally dissipated. Life was getting back to normal. On November the 5th, 1948, the body of Henry Booker Tennyson was found lying in his bed in his room in Texarkana on the Arkansas side. Henry Booker was 18 years old and a University of Arkansas freshman. He'd had a keen interest in music and played trombone for the school marching band in Arkansas High, along with previous phantom victim Betty Jo Booker. Described as someone who never fit in and living with an inferiority complex, he'd shown difficult signs for several years in high school, staying in his room and rarely socialising. Henry Booker had committed suicide by ingesting mercury cyanide that he had bought the day before his suicide from a local store. In the shop clerk, he intended to use it for rat poison. Instead, he used it upon himself on the 4th of November, 1946. Along with his body, police also found on his desk two notes. The first was in a brown folder with a page titled, My Final Note. To whom it may concern, this is my last word to you fine people, and you are fine. I want to thank you for all the trouble that you have gone to, to send me to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Belva Joe for putting up with me the way she did, 
She had to know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night. And I killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best except for the Viewmaster, which will go to Belfort Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to Daddy. I think it should go to him and tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye everybody. See you sometime if I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. H.B. Tennyson. For the record, Belva Joe was 12 years old at the time. Alongside this folder was a second note, a pen, and to the right of this, a lockbox, securely locked. The note in the middle of the desk was a page that read, In a tube, a paper is found. It rolls on colour and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn and inside is the sheet that you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. The riddle referred to the pen, also in the middle of the desk. It was printed with two capital letter Bs, and inside was a further series of clues to the lockbox code. Unamused by the initial riddle, police only found this third paper later, and instead broke open the lockbox by force. Inside they found many further notes, drafts of the final note, along with versions of his own epitaphs. One night was of particular interest concerning the earlier confession as to who made the killings. It read, Please disregard all other messages which I have written. They are only thoughts which I was thinking about as possible reasons for taking my own life. As I think about it, it is none of these things. They are not the reasons for this incident. There's a much later point to it all. Happiness. Yes, happiness. If I am out of the way, all the family can get down to their own lives. Mother will not have to worry about me making my grades, and Daddy will not have to put out more money on me, which would do no more good than it did in high school. No one will have to worry about me, keep having to push me through the things which would be best for me. After much thought, I decided to take this way out. It took more thought than anyone can think possible. It started about a week ago, when I began to think of a way to get out of this. Running away would not do any good. The police would find me wherever I went and would bring me back to it all. No, Mother and Daddy are not to blame. It is just me. If I had done what they told to do, this would have never happened. Studying instead of playing around. Going out with people in my age group instead of staying home and dreaming. The Texarkana Gazette ran the story, though over the weekend, Saturday the 6th of November, Betty Jo Booker's mother was reported to have visited Henry Booker's mother to offer her condolences and to ensure her that she thought her son was not involved with the murder of her daughter. On Sunday the 7th, James Freeman, a longtime friend of Henry Booker's, went to see the deputy prosecutor, Robert Hall, to tell him that he was with Henry Booker on the night of the Starks' attacks. The two were apparently together in Henry's house and therefore could not have been out at the farmhouse. By Monday, the Gazette had reported that a second note denying any part in the crimes had been found and that by the 10th had outright stated that Henry Booker had been eliminated as a suspect entirely. Evidence that the note was a mere fantasy seemed to continue to stack up. 
His sister commented that she was unsure Henry Booker even knew how to drive. His elder brother confirmed that he had actually taught him to drive in the summer of 1947. He also mentioned that he had never shown any interest in guns and he doubted he even knew how to load one, a fact his sister confirmed. Henry Booker's body had its fingerprints taken and compared against the fingerprints found on Paul Martin's car, though it contained no match. This appeared to be the final nail in the coffin and the case against Henry Booker falls apart. Or does it? In a talk given at Texas High on November the 8th, 2014, forensic psychiatrist John Tennyson, a loose relation to Henry Booker Tennyson himself, argues quite a different story. During this talk, Tennyson argues that the note confessing to being the killer was only intended to be seen by his family, that the note reported at the time as a denial of confession was in fact not a denial, or that the final note was a false confession at all. Rather, in this interpretation, he is merely clarifying that the killings should be disregarded as a reason for suicide. He also disputes the fingerprint evidence, stating that whilst no prints matched those found on the car, they had also failed to match the 12,500 other suspects in a case that they had been tested alongside, including those of Swinney. In fact, he argues that with the mistreatment of the handling of the car, it's unlikely that the fingerprints were of the Phantom at all. As for shooting guns, he discovered a rather damning series of photographs that showed Henry Booker, at a young age, holding a 22 calibre Winchester rifle with an empty box of ammunition at his feet. As for the driving, it was well known that Henry Booker visited his sister in Robert's Courts outside the western boundary of Texarkana, around 10 miles from his home on the Arkansas side. Tennyson argues that it's unlikely that she would not have known how he got to her house on those occasions. Tennyson continues to dispute other facts reported over the years too. In regards to Henry Booker's friend, James Freeman, he questions why he went to see the deputy prosecutor, who happened to be friends with Henry Booker's elder brother, rather than the police, and why, when he was asked how the pair found out about the Starks' farmhouse attack, he could not recall, stating only that he had heard it over the radio or someone came in and told them. He argues that it's far more usual to remember exactly where and how you found out about such a large or shocking event. Mahaffey, he argues, who was on friendly terms and well acquainted with Henry Booker's mother, as the editor of the Gazette, had no reason to include the report in the paper of Betty Jo Booker's mother ensuring Henry's mother that she didn't believe he had anything to do with the murders, other than to evoke an emotional response from readers and that, in fact, as Betty Jo's mother had no inside knowledge, nor was an expert, her comments were factually irrelevant. He also questions what had led the later report to be published announcing him as having been eliminated from suspicion with no reason given, despite the fact that decades later, officials still stated the opposite. Perhaps most interesting in his argument is the fact that Henry Booker lived in close proximity to all the victims. Some are tenuous links with victims working at relatives' factories, but others are slightly tighter. He schooled and played in the marching band together with Betty Jo. Richard Griffin lived in the same housing as sister, where he routinely visited to babysit for her children, and all three couples visited the Paramount Theatre before the attacks, though in the case of Paul Martin, he had visited with his friend Tom Albritton, not Betty Jo. But what would that have to do with Henry Booker? Henry Booker worked at the Paramount as an usher during the time of the attacks. Are these just coincidences that emanate naturally from a small town, or is there more to it? 
that in one way or another, Henry Booker was linked to every single victim and would have lived and worked among each and every one of them. He posits that all of this, alongside the fact that he was known to have shown signs of poor mental health and inferiority complex, and he had never really seemed to fit in with others, and that fact that he eventually killed himself, are all traits that exist with far higher than average rates among known serial killers. This keeps him high up on the list of phantom suspects. After all of this, the killings had at least stopped in Texarkana, and the story had slipped quietly away into the past. UL Swinney served 26 years in prison, and after an appeal due to being inadequately represented during his trial, he was released on parole in 1973. He maintained his innocence for the crimes undertaken by the Phantom of 46 until the day he died, which came upon him whilst he resided in a nursing home in Dallas in 1994. In the end, we are left with nothing for either suspect but circumstantial evidence. It seems likely that Swinney was the Phantom, but absolutely impossible given the sheer amount of botched evidence and conflicting statements to secure a 100% certainty, and most definitely would not have been enough for a conviction. The story of Texarkana has lived on for many years, retold twice in film and suggested as a prime contender for the hook-handed killer of urban legend who killed people in their cars parked on lovers' lanes. Could the killer have been Swinney or Tennyson, or could he have perhaps been some other drifter who disappeared into the night never to return? More frighteningly, could he have been a resident of Texarkana who felt the situation too hot to continue his spree and who then went on to live, work and socialise among the families of his victims for the rest of his life, unbeknowingly? It is more than anything else a story of its time, destined to be told for years to come, and maybe, one day, the truth will out. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. It's a fairly heavy one that, isn't it? So I'm going to probably, I've already ground up way too much of your time. So I'm going to save my thoughts on the matter until this coming live stream, which will be Friday the 12th. This coming Friday, basically, it'll be on YouTube. If you want to get involved, come on the Discord or come along to the live stream. Uh, you can find out more details about that by either going on our social media or getting in our Discord. And you can do both of those things. All the links are darkhistories.com. If you'd like to support the show, that would be amazing. We've got a patron at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Or we've got a coffee if you just want to do like a one-off couple of quid my way, buy me a beer. That would be amazing. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just listen to the episodes for free because they're free anyway. If you can't afford to buy me a beer, knock yourself out.
So I'm going to leave it at that for this week and I'm going to save all my thoughts until the live stream purely because I've already sapped up way too much of your time. So thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm never going to write an episode like this again because it was an absolute monstrosity and I'm probably now going to go get in bed and sleep for the next six or seven years just to recover. So yeah, I suppose I should actually, yeah, I'll be the one sleeping tight this time. So thanks for listening and I'll see you either at the live stream or in a couple of weeks. Cheers.